since the, since the beginning of mankind, um, one thing that has always inspired people to worship God is, is if we somehow uh, sort of zoom out or try to get a bird's eye glimpse of some of the big things God has done. Like creation. Have you ever gone up on a, a, a mountaintop and looked out over some view and it is literally awe-inspiring? Like, what must God be like if he could do all of this? Well, this morning, to that end, I want to help us just consider uh, how massive just our solar system is. Most of us grew up um, seeing diagrams like this of our solar system. And maybe in your science classroom when you were a kid, there was a, there was a model of the solar system. Do you remember one of those? Well, they're all, in some ways, they're helpful, but they're wildly inaccurate. It's impossible to build a model of our solar system to scale. It's not possible. You know, it's nice to be able to see the order in the planets, but, you know, the planets don't, don't orbit in a flat circle. They, you know, their, their orbits go in all different directions. But the scope, the scale, really is impossible. Let me help you understand that this morning. Let's build a model. Let's try our best to build a model of the solar system this morning. You want to do that? I happen to bring the sun with me this morning. Here it is. We're going to have exercise ball sun this morning. I'm going to put it back here under the cross. Um, full disclosure, my figures are a little bit off. I thought that was a bigger exercise ball than it is. You have to imagine that that's 36 inches across, about a yard across. So the sun's a little bit small. So that was the sun in our model. And it's even a little bit bigger than that. How big should we make the earth if we were going to make this model of our solar system to scale? What do you think? We should make, oh, it must have, it must have got, it must have fallen off during, the earth fell off during prayer requests. Here it is. The earth would be approximately a pea. I was all out of peas. So we're going to have unroasted coffee bean earth this morning. Okay. If exercise ball sun is even a little bigger than that, so this should be smaller to this scale, but if, if it was a, a yard across, the earth would be approximately the size of a pea. But now, where should I put the earth in our model of the solar system? How far away, how close or how far? We could do this like a, like a Price is Right game. Remember the mountain climber? Oh, that guy, remember him? Right? Where I could keep getting farther away and you and the audience, you can, you can yell at me to either stop or keep going. Take a guess. Where do you think? You shouldn't know this. Just take a guess. Tell somebody next to you where you think pea-sized earth should go in relation to exercise ball sun. Well, if you said anywhere on our church property, you missed it. Because we would have to, if we kept going east here, we would have to go out through the kitchen door, through the neighbor's backyard, around their house, and almost to Wellington Street. 
over there. And then we could drop down unroasted coffee bean earth in their yard. But remember, we were trying to make a model of the solar system. So we're not even close to done yet. The, I think still the generally understood extent of our solar system is Pluto. Whether it's a planet or a planetoid or whatever they're calling it, it's there. What would Pluto look like if we have exercise ball sun and we have unroasted coffee bean earth that's over almost to Wellington Street? What would Pluto look like? Pluto would look like a grain of sand. And I don't even know why I brought one up here now that I'm doing it because you can't possibly see it. But grain of sand Pluto. And where do you think we would have to put Pluto if coffee, unroasted coffee bean earth is almost to Wellington Street? Where does Pluto go on our model? You'd have to, let's, let's, we'd have to get in a car, a warm one hopefully this morning. And we could drive outside of Imperial, past um, T-Junction. And you know when you get to the, the point where you can see the airport, the end of the runway to your left? Right there, if you go approximately 15 hundredths of a mile further down the road, you could pull over and drop grain of sand Pluto on the ground. And that's where that would be. You see why, why I say it's impossible to build a model of the solar system? Because the only way to shrink those distances is to make exercise ball sun smaller. But if you make it any smaller, you have nothing to model it after. And our solar system is just like our little cul-de-sac in the universe. Because if we were going to expand our model and get another exercise ball, where would, how far would we have to drive before we could put down a new sun, a new star? Another exercise ball. Well, we'd have to get in that car again. I hope you use the bathroom before you take this trip because it's going to be a while. And if this were possible, if we could drive and leave the surface of the earth and escape gravity and drive between 60 and 65 miles an hour, we would have to drive 24 hours a day, seven days a week for about six months we would arrive on the surface of the moon and we could put the, sec the cl next closest exercise ball down in our model that's scaled down billions of times. You know why they call it space? Because most of it is just exactly that. It's just space. It's unfathomably huge. And one thing that has always inspired worship in people is going outside in a dark place on a clear night and looking up at that model we just built is just our little neighborhood. Astronomers estimate if you're going to count the stars just in our galaxy, you could count a million stars if that were possible. Then you'd have to start over and do that a hundred thousand times. There are a hundred thousand million stars just in our galaxy. And there are millions and millions of galaxies. And David hit the nail on the head. 
King David writes this psalm. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have, who have displayed your splendor above in the heavens. He says, when I go outside at night and I consider your heavens, and look what he calls it, the work of your, not hands, the work of your fingers. Billions and billions and billions of light years worth of stuff out there. Needlepoint to our God. But it's better than that. It's cooler than that. Because not only is our God the creator, the God of all of that infinite hugeness, David says, oh, Yahweh, that's God's name, our Lord, our Adonai, you allowed the, yourself to be known by us walking around on a little unroasted coffee bean earth, tiny little specks of human beings. God cared about us. What is mankind that you're mindful of us? Human beings that you care for us. Our God made all of this infinite hugeness just by speaking it into existence and yet he cares about you. And he doesn't just care about us. He cares about our cells. He cares about the cancer cell growing in you or your loved one. He cares about stuff in you that's not even real physical stuff. He cares about your hurts and your rejection and your pain, your depression. The God of infinite bigness is the God of infinite smallness. And sometimes you have to climb up to a peak like that and consider it and let yourself get sort of knocked out because it brings worship to our hearts. This God we can't fathom who loves us. He sent his son, Jesus. He became a little human being. In the grand scheme of things, the teeniest, tiniest little unroasted coffee bean speck in the universe these little dots walking around. He became one of us so that he could experience what we experience and so that he could have a relationship with us. Sometimes it's helpful to get a bird's eye view like that. Well, this morning we're going to end a section of the book of Romans. We've been in it for some time now. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 in the book of Romans are go together as a unit. And today, Paul writes as if he climbed to the peak of Romans 9, 10, 11, and he looks around, and he sort of loses his mind. And he just erupts like into song. But the peak he has climbed is not creation. He didn't build a model of the solar system. He just looked at how God saved Israel and faithful Israelites in the past and Gentiles like us, non, people of non-Israeli descent like us that are called Gentiles and how he's going to save Israel in the future and how he worked all that together. And it makes Paul lose his mind because it's so grand and so awesome and so majestic. We've been in this section that I said a long time ago answers this question. What about Israel? Paul in the first century, people knew Israelites, Jews, knew God promised to save Israel, but after Jesus came, 
Israel's not being saved by God. So if God's not keeping the promise to save Israel, whatever shall we do? And Paul says, you're just not climbing high enough. Just because you can't see Jews streaming into the church, don't let that, don't allow that to make you doubt God's goodness and his promises. Climb up a little higher with me. Take a look at what God is doing. It'll knock your socks off. That's what Paul says. So let's climb a little bit with Paul. Ascend the summit of this passage and see what we can learn. Romans chapter 11, verses 28 through 36. Read this way. Paul says, from the standpoint of the gospel, they, and Paul's talking about Israel here, the Jews, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, church. But from the standpoint of God's choice or election, they're beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these Israelites also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up or closed up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. And then here comes, here's where Paul sort of just loses it. Oh, the depths, the riches, both the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who became his counselor, who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now, what did Paul just say and why did it make him like burst into song? All of a sudden, that's what I want us to see. Paul's going to retrace. He's going to climb up and look back over redemptive history and forward into redemptive history to see what God's plan is for saving Israel and Gentiles and future Israel. And he finds it pretty incredible. Here we go. Here's what he finds. He starts in verses 28 and 29 where, where Paul reminds us that Israel, the nation of Israel, was loved for the sake of the patriarchs. Paul, Paul has been consistent. His main idea in this book is that no one is going to be rescued by God. Nobody's going to be counted righteous by God, considered good enough for eternal life by God, except for those who believe in what Jesus did at the cross. Paul's been consistent with that. And everyone knows by Paul's day, Israel has not made the decision to believe in Jesus. They've rejected Jesus. So they're not being rescued by God, being redeemed by God. By and large, there are some exceptions like, I don't know, Paul. So Paul says here, that's why Paul says here, verse 28, in regard to the gospel, they are enemies. In regard to the gospel, Israel is a bunch of enemies. Now, very important question, enemies of whom? Of whom is Israel an enemy? Because it's not us. It's not the church. Paul would never say, church, 
You are the enemy of Israel, and Israel is the enemy of the church. Not at all. Paul says, in fact, the opposite. You should be a friend of Israel. You should be wanting to win Israel into the church. So, who is Israel the enemy of? You know the answer to that? God. In regard to the gospel, Israel is an enemy of God for your sake. What is the only way? Well, Romans 1, 2, and 3, Paul taught us every single person is an enemy of God. Because we were saved. If we're saved, we were saved while we were God's, what? Enemies. And anybody who's not saved, redeemed, rescued, is still at enmity with God. And once Israel rejected Jesus, they went in the enemy camp. The only way to have the enmity that exists between me and a perfect and holy righteous God is by believing in Jesus. Israel hasn't done that. So, in regard to the gospel, they are enemies of God. And Paul says they are enemies of God for, for your sake. Israel isn't your enemy, but that, but that Israel is God's enemy, benefits you and me somehow. How? We've talked about that over the last couple of weeks. Once Israel rejected Jesus, God, even though he has planned and promised to save Israel, hit the pause button on that plan, left Israel in a state of separateness from him, enemy of him, so that he could turn his attention to save a bunch of people like us, non-Israelites, Gentiles. That's how they are enemies for your sake. But... Paul says, in regard to being chosen by God, they're still dearly loved. In other words, someday God's going to hit the resume button or the pause button again, so it resumes. He's going to save Israel. Now, why does Paul say God's going to save Israel? Because they're so faithful and they're so good and they're so moral and they're trying so hard to please God that they just deserve to go to heaven someday? No. He says, in regards to being chosen to be saved someday, they're dearly loved by God for the sake of the fathers, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I don't have time to tell you the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It starts in Genesis chapter 12 or a bit before. It ends in uh, Genesis chapter 50. Okay, so we can't do that this morning. But God, when Abraham was saved, why was Abraham saved? You know that story? His name was Abram. Did God, God had chosen to send a savior. He was going to, the savior was going to be a human being, a descendant of the first woman named Eve. God had to send him into some human family because that's where human beings come from. Did God choose Abram? to be the one he was going to start that work of sending the Savior through because Abram was so moral and so good and trying so hard to please the one true God? Is that why? No. Abram was, a, was an Iraqi fella, lived in a polytheistic culture that worshipped many gods, had no idea there was only one true God, until God showed up and said, Abram, I'd like to introduce myself to you. I'm the only God there is. And I want you to believe in me. And if you believe in me and follow me, here's some promises I'll give you. And Abram's like, sweet, okay. That's, the, that's it. 
And Abram believed God, the Bible tells us, and his faith was credited, reckoned, counted as if he had lived a life of perfection. That's how Abram was saved. And then Abraham was promised many people would become a nation, that's Israel, and God was going to bless all the nations of the earth through his family, and that's the Savior. So, hang on to this for later, you're going to need this this morning. Abraham was saved, rescued by God, when he wasn't looking for God, didn't believe in that God, wasn't trying to please this one true God that he didn't even know existed. That's when God saved him. Right? Now, Israel is the result of some of those promises to Abraham. God promised, I'm going to save this people. Why are these people going to be saved? Because God promised their forefathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. The gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. Once God has promised a promise, write it down, Paul did. Moses did. The authors of Scripture did. It's irrevocable. God promised. That's why Israel is going to be saved. But remember, God appeared to Israel before Israel was Israel when they weren't looking for it, didn't expect it, weren't trying to please this God. Now in verse 30, Paul turns to talking to the Gentile church and he says, he starts verse 30 this way, just as you. So he was just talking about how God chose Israel and that happened in Abraham. And now he tells Gentile believers in the first century, you guys were saved the same way that Israel was. Just as you, you guys were formerly disobedient to God, and now you have received mercy after Israel rejected Christ, hit the pause button, what we've already talked about. Do you see Let me tell you another story first. Paul's main point is that the nations, you, first century Gentile Christians, were saved in the same way, very similarly to the way Abraham was saved after the Israel rejected Jesus due to their disobedience. What's the main disobe act of disobedience of Israel in our day? Rejecting Christ, right? They reject Christ. God hit the pause button. Jesus tells a story. He, he starts letting us know during his lifetime that's what's going to happen. He, there's, Matthew 22, there's a story, a parable of the wedding guests. Do you know that parable? It's a story where there's a king in this story who's God the Father character in the story. And he wants to throw this huge party, this huge banquet for his one and only son's wedding. And it's time. And so the king tells his servants, go out and invite my subjects. Tell them it's time to come to the wedding. And in the story, what do the, what do the subjects do? They go, oh, I don't know, man. We're kind of busy. I got a hair appointment. We can't come today. But they really, they weren't too busy. They reject the son. And they reject the father. So what the, what the king does then is he sends other servants 
back out, like go get the lowlifes, go out in the villages, go just grab guys off the street, bring them in because my son is going to have a huge banquet. He's not going to be humiliated by having no one show up. That's Jesus's way of telling us ahead of time. The original people who get invited by God, Israel, they're, they're not going to accept the son. God's going to have to go turn his attention and save people that weren't on the original invitation list. That's us. That's us. And the people Paul is writing this to were saved exactly like Abraham was saved. Think about this. Paul is writing Romans to first-generation Christians, right? In the first century, the first Gentiles to ever hear about Jesus. Did they get saved because they were trying so hard to please the God of Israel and be counted righteous in his sight? No, they were polytheistic. They worshiped at weird temples and made weird sacrifices and did all kinds of disgusting things to worship fake gods. And then someone blows into town. It wasn't Paul for them, but somebody blows into town and tells them the gospel. And it's just like with Abraham. God shows up and says, listen, you need rescued by the one true God. And the first Gentiles who get saved, do you see how it's very similar to Abraham? They weren't trying to please God. They didn't believe there was only one true God. And I'll be darned, they were saved by a God they didn't even believe in yesterday. Just like Abraham. Does that make sense? And that happened after Israel was disobedient. Now, by the way, that's Paul's entire point in, in Romans chapter 4. Everybody who is saved is saved just like Abraham was saved. Now, verse 31. Here is where my mind starts to get blown. And I think Paul's too. And this is why he writes this. Paul says, and so now they, that's Israel again, they have now been disobedient. Why? In order that by the mercy shown to you or according to the mercy shown to you or in the same way of that mercy that was shown to you, they may now receive the same kind of mercy. Track with me here. Here's what Paul is saying. This is so incredible. Paul says, now... God has arranged things so that his people, Israel, are in the same situation the Gentiles of Paul's day were and Abram was way back then. Do you see, Israel right now is in the same situation the first Christians were in Paul's day, the same position Abram was in Abram's day. They're going to be saved in the same way. Is Israel going to be saved by God one day? Yes. When? In what situation? What's going to happen? We've talked about that the last couple of weeks. It's going to be miraculous. It's going to... The second coming of Christ, when Jesus begins to put an end to this place and return to earth, and his feet are going to touch the Mount of Olives, and it's going to split in half, and he is going to have protected his people Israel. And you know what's going to happen? Israel as a nation is going to go. He was God the whole time. And they're going to be saved by a God they did not believe in. They didn't know was real. They didn't know they should have been trying to please. And they're going to be rescued the same way. 
And so Paul finishes the last verse of this section of the book, of the body of this section of the book, before he bursts into song. Paul says, for, here's the summary of the whole three-chapter section. God has consigned all people to disobedience. Why? So that he may show mercy to them all. Paul climbs up to this peak, and he's like, how was Israel saved 4,000 years ago in Israel's past? How are these Gentiles being saved in my day, in Paul's day? How is Israel going to be saved in the future? And he goes, oh my goodness. God has arranged things so that the only people who ever get saved are people who are surprised they're being saved. Like people who didn't even know they needed to be saved. People who didn't even believe in that God or thought they were good enough in front of whatever God was out there. And all of a sudden they get surprised by a God they didn't know, they weren't trying to please, they didn't believe in, and God does it over and over and over again. He did it with Abram, he did it with Israel, he did it with the Gentiles, he's going to do it with Israel again in the future, so that everyone knows the only person who ever gets saved is somebody who understands this is completely the mercy and the grace of God. The only people who wind up getting saved are people who are surprised Either that there is a God I need to be saved by or that I am someone who needs to be saved. And it blows Paul's mind. Don't let the fact that the Jews aren't being saved today make you doubt God's promises. Climb a little higher and look what he's doing. Do you see it? It's mind-blowing. Which is why Paul, I don't even know if he planned this. This isn't part of the story. He gasps, and then he writes the gasp in the letter. Oh! He writes, oh! The depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how fathomless are his ways. If you back up and look at this, it's staggering. Who could even think this up? Who could have a brain that would even work like this? And then who could pull it off? It's one thing if God would save everybody like Jesus is going to save Israel and just like show up, do it miraculously. No, God has all this stuff arranged and people, people never get outside of his perfect will even if they don't know he's real. Like he plays us like a fiddle. And we can't even tell it's him doing it. We think it's all of our own decisions all the time. There's all the depth of his power and his wisdom and his mercy. It's fathomless. And Paul says, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? I think that one should sting a little bit. You know what Paul just said? After he's climbed up and he sees what God has been doing, he goes, oh, what an idiot I am when I tell, when I try to give God advice. Oh, who do I think I am when I start to tell God, you know, that's not the way I would do things. Not that we ever say it that way. But when we don't have enough trust and faith, just just hang on. Like, I don't get this. 
But I know if I climb up to the peak and see what you're doing, I know it's perfect. Who has ever been God's counselor? Who has ever given God advice? Or who has first given to God that God needs to repay him? Who is it whom God owes something? Who is it that has put the God of the universe in his debt? After all I've done for you. And Paul just ends this way. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Like we can climb up and look at the peak of God's will, eternity past, eternity future. We would find God is making every single thing work. It all comes from him. It all happens through him. And it's all pointing to him. Even though most of the people who have ever lived don't even know he's real. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's Paul's view from the summit. Sometimes we have to be smart enough to just fall down and let God be God. And like, I don't know why this is happening. I don't know why that is happening. But here's what I do know. You are good. You are in control. There's nothing that's happening that doesn't come for you, through you, and to you. From you, through you, and to you. And that has very practical results when we grasp that. And if you come back next Sunday, I will tell you what those practical results are. But for now, pray with me and we will end our time in singing. Father God, um, there have been times where we have all thought you were doing something wrong because you were allowing something that hurts. But just like Paul's church, uh, the church in Rome in, in Paul's day, at least, when they didn't see Israel being saved, they started to doubt your promises and your faithfulness. And Paul encouraged them to just climb a little higher so they could gaze out over what you were actually doing. God, help us to remember when we are in the painful, difficult times where, where life hurts and we can't understand, we just can't climb high enough to see what you're actually doing. But we want our lives, we want to understand that our lives, we want to be involved with you as our lives come from you and through you and to you. Thank you that because of what you've done for Jesus, through Jesus, and what you did to Jesus, and because you have spoke the gospel into our hearts, we can know that when we go to you, we are saved, we're rescued. And if you can do that, help us to trust you with everything else in between. How fathomless are your ways. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen.